Welcome to Bring It to the Altar, a new podcast proudly brought to you by the One Spirit Interfaith Foundation. Founded in London in 1996, One Spirit Interfaith Foundation is an educational charity training open-hearted adults, exploring interfaith ministry, spiritual counselling, sacred activism and the world's many faith paths. This new eight-part podcast series brings you up close with the work of the One Spirit team, faculty, graduate ministers and their wider community of teachers, elders and friends. Weaving tales from right across the globe, each episode features a new voice and tells a unique story of how this important work makes its way into the world. Meet the fabulous Jackie Holder. Ordained with One Spirit in 2002, Jackie is a published author, executive and leadership coach, an intuitive facilitator, coach supervisor and overall creative Wonder Woman. This episode is filled with a lot of heart, humour and aha moments. Here she is with One Spirit's creative lead, Amy Firth. This conversation with Jackie Holder feels like a voyage into the vast and lush lands of our inner worlds, traversing wild mountains, deep rivers, and drinking in the sweet and sacred medicine of ancient truths. Hence, this episode was impossible to edit down, because as you'll shortly hear, Jackie is a poet who feels the world deeply and her words are delicious and important. Our conversation unpacks interfaith ministry and its place in the world. We explore the importance of honoring transition in our lives and the deep need to return to ceremony and ritual to truly witness each other in all of life's thresholds. And we explore Jackie's true love and gift, the practice of journaling and what it can reveal to us when we have the courage to whisk out the wisdom from the depths of our hearts and pour it onto the page. Come with us. This conversation is an adventure definitely worth taking. My name is Amy Firth. Welcome to Bring It to the Altar. So I'm joined here by the wonderful Jackie Holder, who herself is one of those exquisite creatures who is impossible to describe in any kind of job description. Uh, She is an ordained interfaith minister, ordained in 2002, and her work now largely covers an enormous space uh, anchored in, in coaching, in journaling, in writing. She's a published author, she's a public speaker, she is a wonder, and it is a joy to have you here with us, Jackie. Oh, that's a really, um, felt like a really heartfelt, warm, intimate uh, introduction of me. I'm just really pleased to be here mm. with you, and uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunity to have this conversation mm. with you about um, the work of our ministry, which, mm. you know, is very important to all of us so thank you for inviting me thank you i'm going to launch in with a question that i'm going to start with for most of our guests and i'm mindful that it's an impossible question and so i invite you to take this wherever you choose Mm -hmm. there's no right or wrong answer but in your own words how do you define interfaith or what is interfaith to you I have felt into that question for quite a while since you first asked me to um, be part of the Bring It to the Altar series. And where the question has taken me to is going right back to 2000 when I first joined the Interface Seminary. And 
to a point where I asked myself the reason why I was there. And I had to look back into my past. In Africa, we have um, one of the mythological birds. It's the Sankofa bird. That its its body faces forward, but its head faces backwards. <laughs> this um, the wisdom of knowing that you have to look back into your past in order to look forward into your future. And so, when I looked back into my past. I connect with the little girl who was brought up in an African Caribbean family in the UK. My parents were from Barbados. They emigrated here to the United Kingdom in the early 1960s. I was the first of five children born here in the six, sorry, six children born here in the UK. Two brothers were born in Barbados and I was the first born here. And um, we were raised in the black Pentecostal faith and religion so that consisted of going to church every single Sunday um, going to prayer meetings in the week I can remember as a little girl holding my dad's hand going to um, church I also remember walking the streets of South London with him there's a particular road in Herne Hill um, in South London where I have a really strong memory of holding my dad's hand, mm. walking up the stairs to someone's house, knocking on the door and giving them a tract. And uh, a tract is like a little booklet that was mm. published that gave verses from the Bible. And it was a way of inviting people to come and worship with us. Our church was in the bottom of a big house along... Um, um, I've totally forgotten the name of the road, but it's in Herne Hill. Mm. So... Um, Church was something that was a place that I grew up in. I worshipped. I had a very strong um, image of what, you know, God. God in the eyes of um, very westernised perception of God. So I also have a very strong memory of sitting in um, the basement room that we used to worship in on Dulwich Road, that was the name of where the church was, mm. and flicking through the Bible. And there was this particular image in Revelations, and it was of the heavens, and it was of a white-bearded God looking through the clouds. And, and I was fascinated. I just sat there looking at this um, image. And I remember I'm, I could only have been about four or five, and yet I was asking myself the question, where am I from? Mm. Where am I going to go? Who am I? So those roots mm. of, you know, the question around interfaith for me started in the Pentecostal church. But what was really clear very early on was the faith and the way we were taught, which was very fundamentalist, really strict boundaries, you know, if you did wrong, God would strike you down. You were evil. You had to repent your sins. It just jarred with my soul. Mm. Even at a young age, you know, without anyone necessary for me to debate any of this with, I I was already questioning mm. the way in which we were coming to the altar in mm. a way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Coming to the altar mm. in that way just did not feel right for me. And... Um, I, I remember I, I must have been around 13, 14, when eventually I did what they they call in our, 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 our tradition, the Pentecostal tradition, of I gave my heart to the Lord, which meant I went to the altar, I started crying, I probably was crying about something at school <laughs> or stuff that was going on in my life, and there was a lot of stuff. And it was like almost... it. it it felt like a baptism of a kind. Do you know mm. what I mean? It did mm. feel, it was a bit like, now that I think about it, it was like going into a therapist surgery. You've got someone who bears witness to your heart, your soul, your spirit, the very essence of who you are, and you lay your troubles down at the altar. Mm. And that's literally what I did. In the praying, you know, they would put their hands on your head. They would, you know, they, it was almost like there was some part of you that was leaving and another part of you that was coming, mm. and which is obviously your true essence. Mm. So... Um, that lasted for about two weeks. The glow <laughs> yeah. was like, you know, I was walking around. My parents started treating me differently. Like mm. I was the holy child. Well, you know, I just couldn't keep it up. <laughs> it was like, it just didn't work. But so, but the, 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 the important thing was I felt 
So even though I rejected the church, and so by the age of 15, I'd stopped going to church. As, uh, by the time I could voice, no, mm. I've got homework to do. No, I'm going to go and see my friend. And my parents stopped pushing back. You know, that was it for me. But that whole longing, that whole desire, um, the spiritual, the, the, the quest for spirit mm. never left me. Mm. Never, ever left me. And I believe that that was the beginning of that journey that took me to interfaith mm. because I always was desiring something more mm. so there were things about um traditional religions and faiths that there was just so much that I had to question I mean first of all there was my blackness there was my identity then later on in my life there was my sexuality, like the freedom to express those mm. things in a way that you could have difference and that you could you could be unique mm. in who you were. It's like finding a place that you could worship where all parts of you were accepted is a very difficult thing to do. Yes. So I feel like I could go into buildings, but I could go into buildings and still not feel at home. Mm. And, you know, that... that that meant that I'd stopped going into the buildings, but I it it also meant that I was then seeking in other places. So I traditionally I went through um, like counselling, and I joined something in America, a movement called the Black Reevaluation of Co-Counselling which came out of a co-counselling, which is quite big. It's still big around the world. It was started by um, a man called um, Harvey Jackins, who was quite an inspirational, really amazing, really spiritual teacher. Mm. Um, but that quest um, to... So there were so many things in the face and the traditions that I, I loved. Do you know what I mean? I love singing. Mm. I feel like hymns in the church even gospel songs were a way of meeting spirit mm. um i really valued quiet time and prayer time like i knew that those were qualities and rituals and practices that made a difference in my life i loved the community part of um being part of a church or a community. So the question was, how could you get that mm. if you're not in a traditional faith or religion? I also knew that um, so many different cultures have ancient tra um, traditions and ceremonies that are of a spiritual nature. And I really started to draw from many of those. So a lot of the Native American ancient wisdoms and teachings, I started to integrate them into the work that I did through learning and development, through facilitation of groups, and eventually into running workshops and retreats, first of all with black women, but then um, opening that out into lots of areas. So when I ended up at the Interfaith Seminary in 2000, what I found was that it, it was almost this amazing space where it gave legitimacy to honour all of the different traditions and the different paths and the wisdom traditions that were part of all of those traditions and to acknowledge that we could draw from any of those in order to really enhance the spiritual well-being of others to enhance the spiritual well-being of community so for me interfaith really spoke to this ability to recognize that all faiths have beauty mm. in them all faiths have wisdom in them all faiths have medicine in them and to me it was just like a coming home mm. it's like i felt like i I, I was free. I was free to immerse myself in so much richness and so much fertility. And that I loved the uh, saying that interfaith has, like one, it's like one root, one tree, mm. one path, many traditions, many mm. paths. 
I'm probably not saying it in the right way, but it it immediately captured what I believe, that there are many paths to spirit. Mm. There are many ways to connect with spirit. Um, one of the things that I felt with my... Um, someone described the Pentecostal church, something I was reading last week, as the charismatic I thought that was so fantastic <laughs> because it's so um, exuberant yes, and, yes. you know, there's volume in it, there's colour in it, mm. there's movement mm. in it. It's, you know, it's quite forceful in terms of what it believes in. And, you know, I really did laugh when I saw that. I was like, yeah, it's like charismatic. But one of the things that I felt with the Pentecostal church was that there were so many can't do, mm. can't do. And what I feel with interfaith is that you're bringing personal meaning mm. to what spirituality means in the everyday. Mm. Mm. I love that. Mm. I love that we we have permission to create rituals and create ceremonies and create sacred spaces, holy spaces in the everyday. To me, that rocks my boat. Yes. Amen, sister. <laughs> that rocks my boat. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm going to have a sore neck from nodding all through this. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Wow. Yes. I know that was a long answer. No, but it, was, it like... was It was, no, it was, it was bang on. And I think it speaks so, it speaks so honestly to what I feel is a, is a deep question that so many people are carrying within themselves at the moment. And I think if you even look at the statistics that are being published these days, particularly in younger people, these new generations, their connection to religion or spirituality, they're stepping away from these institutions or these churches of religion, and yet the spiritual hunger and that yearning and that longing for connection mm. and community is is still there. Mm. And so it, it leads me to the, a question that's very alive in me around the role of interfaith in our current climate. And I say that knowing that the very notion and movement of interfaith is still quite young when you look at the, mm. the time span of humankind. Mm. But it started as a conversation and as an initiative, and I feel like it's evolving into the capacity for people like us, like ministers, to be of service mm -hmm. to humanity by honouring the difference mm -hmm. and working with people where they mm -hmm. are, but also our capacity to be in prayer with others. Mm. And to be in devotion, to reach out and and to touch mm. that sacred space from from different places. There is a question in all that, and I think it is something around how do you see the role of interfaith or interfaith ministry meeting that deep yearning that's seems to be opening up in our world? I just have to take a breath for a moment because the enormity of the question, it just feels like it's, I just feel, it's so important. Mm. It's such an important question that you've asked and uh, you couldn't have asked it at a better time really given where we are mm. in the world, what's happening in the world, politically, socially, economically, um, personally. And I was, um, the some of your words really struck me. So this word of spiritual hunger and the, you know, there is a longing for that spiritual hunger. And if we think about society, we think about here in the UK, we think about societies globally, we have increased levels of anxiety. We have increased levels of depression. We have increased levels of spending and care on mental health and well-being. 
we have a rise in gun violence, we have a rise in um, violence across all different genres of violence, just too many. Um, we have a rise in, you know, sexual assaults on women. There is no greater time than now for interfaith to really be in the arena mm. because the world needs us. The world needs the work of the spiritual minister who is in the everyday. I don't believe in necessarily that I have to have a title of, you know, this is Reverend Jackie Holder, here she comes and she's mm. gonna do her thing. Obviously we need to do that when we're doing ceremonies because you do step into a leadership role and you are holding the space, you're holding that container for that celebration, for that ritual of letting go or saying goodbye. But there are times when we are just standing in the queue or you're, you know, you're in your place of work and you need to hold sacred space for another, you need to create that safe container that can happen here right now in the moment um, and I think there are I was thinking about I'm in the middle of um, training as a psychotherapist I'm in my second year and I'm thinking that if we think about how far back the world the work of psychotherapy goes so we're probably talking about from the the 1920s and just thinking about the, evo the, the evolution of psychotherapy here in the west mm. because obviously we know in ancient <laughs> traditions they they understood what that was they had their their um, village meetings they had their shamans they had their elders and mm. people would come mm. with their their soul searching their dark night of the soul we had that in community but obviously in the west there's been so much separation we've had to it's evolved in a different way but in terms of the evolution of psychotherapy the way I see interfaith is that it's have it's it's developing its roots mm. because it is a necessary requirement of society as we know it now. Society will not be able to exist without the um, the work of interfaith spreading its roots mm. into the everyday, which is what I think I really value about the training, the two-year training, which I think is very necessary, um, in that it really helps you to shape how you are going to honour your ministry, mm. how you are going to take your ministry out into the wider world, how you are going to be. It's almost like, what is what is your brand? Who, what is it that you stand for? What, where will you, what will you touch that will bring sacred space, whether it's through cooking, whether it's through cleaning. I just had my, I just, I went to my friend's house a couple of days ago and it was like, they were telling me about their cleaner and I was almost crying, crying with like, please give me her number. It was like the, the way they describe the way she comes into their home and the way she takes care in cleaning their home and handing it back to them. Like, you know, Rumi has this quote, you know, one can kneel on the foot, you know, you can be kneeling on the floor mm. to pray. Yes. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like, being on the ground. And I'm thinking about, you know, all of my grandmothers, my ancestors, who for the floor was a place that they mm -hmm. knew very well, where, do you know what I mean? That is also a place of reverence, yes. a place of holiness. Why else do we bow on the floor when we will bow to the ground when yes. we're, we're praying? We knew that the earth was a natural place to pay reverence to sacred space mm -hmm. and to holiness. So in a way we've got to, Interfaith is, is, is deepening those roots, helping people to identify what their, their ministry is. And really, we're, we're igniting spirit that is already there in people. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not like, you know, I do not feel like I am necessarily going to empty vessels. I feel that often what I am doing, I'm either joining alongside people who sometimes they don't know how to express it or they might feel they're not in the right company to express it. So they're trying to find their tribe. They're trying to find people that would understand and relate to what it is they have to say. Um, or you're giving people permission Mm. To, to, to to bring it out. Mm. So I feel like never 
I feel like this time right now is probably such a, a pivotal time, mm. actually, for interfaith. Mm. You know, I, I do a lot of work in the NHS. I work with staff in the NHS. I work with leaders and, and managers. And um, so much of their work is holy work. Yes. It doesn't matter if you're admin. doesn't matter if you're a leader. If you, doesn't matter if you're in strategy. doesn't matter if you're a clinic, clinician. It's holy work. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You're, you've, got, you've got a body. People are coming to you with their bodies. Mm. The body is a temple. The body houses the heart, the mind, the soul, and the spirit. So imagine. Mm. Imagine how people can m make a difference to other people if they are connected to that their own spirit. You can then see the spirit in another do you know what I mean instead yes. of just like talking harshly to someone you could have a kind word you could put your arm on someone's word you could light a candle when someone is you know at that absolute edge of knowing that they've just had to say goodbye mm. to someone and they just feel like they cannot live another day you can light a candle literally or you can light a candle metaphorically you could hold a light to them mm. do you know what I mean so our work, it's like a roller coaster. Mm. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're also reminding people that they can do that ministry for themselves. I can't remember. I think it was... Um, so I was ordained in 2002. And we were given a passage, a chapter to read from... It was, I think it was one of Caroline Mace's books... And there was something about everybody is already born a minister. Do you know what I mean? Like if you were born, you were already ordained as a minister. Yes. But there's something about we forget the minister part that is us. Yes, yes, I love that. I love that. And I think it speaks so it speaks so beautifully to we often try and find ways to describe what it is that we offer. And the most beautiful soundbite I've heard recently is exactly that. We are gifting people back to themselves. That's it. That's it. That's it for me. Mm. You know, it's like, it's not like I've got some special powers or gifts that I'm sort of like above everybody else. That's why I don't tell people that I'm an interfaith minister because the moment you say you're a vicar or you're a priest, people have expectations of you. And it's almost like they give you, they elevate you to a position and they put themselves in another position. Mm. And to me, that's not what it's about. Mm. And I love that we were in our um, journey of the two years, we are taught that you co-create ceremonies and rituals with people now I love that mm. so I you know I'll go into someone may invite me to do their baby blessing or they might invite me to do um, some sort of ceremony or ritual for a wedding or a significant birthday or moving into a new home and I think the biggest gift for me is being able to co-create that with the person or people involved because they often have such wonderful thoughts, mm. ideas, you know, prayers that they think, oh, that was something that I grew up with. That I, oh, can I have that in there? Mm. It's just like, to me, it's like I get to weave together magic, just sitting there in conversation with another person. And we just create this energy together. But they're, they're, they've, They've authorised it. Yes. It's not me authorising it. Mm. They've authorised it. And then it has more meaning to them, more significance to them. I can still remember blessing my t my friend's two children and planting a rose bush in their garden. And, you know, there were people, some of her family were um, traditional Christians and they were like you know what's she doing and they sort of stood in the back of the garden well by the end of the ceremony we were all hovering over this rose bush <laughs> do you know what I mean all trying to get a bit of yeah. do you know somehow by just 
are honouring mm. the fact that this is what they wanted for their child. Mm. It was hard for them to resist the love and the joy that was there in that moment. Like we can forget about whatever differences and, you know, it's like bringing together the Sikh and the Hindu and the African Caribbean and the and the, the white English or the white European. And, you know, we can all find commonalities in our differences. Mm. And I think that's a very wonderful thing. And especially when people um, are marrying across different cultures, then of course they can honor both traditions and any other traditions that they feel their spirit or their soul feels called to. Mm. And I think that's that, that, that gives people a lot of freedom. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to imagine that I'm listening and hearing this kind of stuff for the first time. And I'm noticing in me the, this enormous kind of joy and surprise and this question of sort of, but can you do that? Is, is that possible? Mm. And... And I think it's for for someone like myself who's immersed in this work day in day and day out. It's it's such a joy to remember and connect with people hearing and discovering this for the first time. That yes, this exists in our world, and yes, there are growing numbers of people who are devoted to bringing this into our world. Yeah. And even though we do use words like ministry and reverend we use them in a way that is very anchored in in the now and in in the yeah. human you mentioned about reverence and and this is why we use this title it's not to elevate ourselves in any yeah. way it's to remind us that we have reverence for all of life yeah. for all life yeah and when we talk about our ministries they are as diverse as as we are, as we yeah. come. And yeah. like you say, it's about reconnecting and remembering, uncovering that gift that is unique to each of us mm. and allowing our ministries to let that gift unfold into the world, to, to find our passion and, mm. and to give it away. And, this, and therefore our, our community is so diverse. Yes, we have ministers focusing on ceremony and weddings and funerals and baby blessings. We also have ministers working as chaplains in hospitals and hospices yeah. and prisons. And we also have ministers working as cleaners yeah. and teachers yes. and gardeners and bus drivers yeah. and lawyers and yeah. you name it. And it is about allowing that sacred yeah. space to be central to your life where you are devoted to being a vessel of love in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. And um, I can totally um, concur with that. And I was thinking I was at my friend's 50th birthday party at the weekend um, and uh, we were all standing up to say happy birthday to her. We were in a, she hired out a restaurant. It was really lovely. And um, they said they're just about to serve the food and someone shouted out, you haven't blessed the food. Someone needs to bless the food. You know what I mean? It was like, who's going to do a prayer? And I just was about to kind of, okay. And then somebody did it. Beautiful. And they did it beautifully. It was like her prayer was so, it was like when she finished, everyone went, amen. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, I was like, this is what it's all about. Yes. It's already there. They didn't need to, the person who had, mm. you know, who's got this title yes. to do it. It's already here. Yes. And we, you know, I might do it one day and somebody else might do it another day. Um, I remember at Christmas, my family, they're so funny. They, um, so like when we have our Christmas dinner, they'll say like, okay, don't, we're going to breast the food. And then if I sort of like, uh, yeah, uh, maybe we'll let Aida do it because I go on. <laughs> do you know what I mean? They're like, we want to eat. <laughs> they do not want to be listening to my prayer that goes on and on. And I think that's quite funny. And then, you know, my daughter just has this ability to just say it short, sweet mm. and to the point with such eloquence and poise. Mm. And doesn't see herself as particularly, you know, the spiritual one, but mm. yet has so much spirit mm. that she doesn't doesn't recognise. Mm. But Amy, there's one thing I wanted to say to add to um, 
the conversation that we've had so far. I think one of the things as well around um, our work as interfaith ministers that we do a really good job of helping people with transitions. Mm. So when we talk about change and the cycle of change, what's happened in modern life is that we've gotten away from marking transitions. So when change happens, we often think about it on a physical um, level, but we don't think about the spiritual Um, process and psychology of change and the transitions are so important so I was thinking about what brought me to interfaith uh, apart from this quest and this wanting to find home in terms of that spiritual home in 2000 it was also on the back end of a breakup of a five-year um, re- five-year-old relationship and I have this memory of um I used to uh, run each morning round um, my local park and end up under the tree, uh, under the branches of this huge tree that used to sit at the top of one of the hills. And um, this became my, I see trees as my cathedrals. These are, mm. you know, like some people will go into the building of church. I go visit trees. That's mm. where I go and do my worship. And that particular year, I used to do a lot of worshiping under that tree. And my worshiping was in the form of standing quietly, in silence, sitting quietly in silence, um, sitting on, it had huge bulky um, roots that had come up Mm. above the earth so I could sometimes sit on those. Um, I would often sit there, sometimes humans wouldn't see me but but dogs would, do you know what I mean? They'd smell me just sitting there sort of like um, immersed in the tree. And I I was in a very... uh, it was a it was a difficult time. I think I'd sort of hit a dark night of the soul, as as you do when you're getting ready to, you know, make a significant change and go through transformation. And uh, one day uh, I decided to create a ceremony for myself. Mm. So what I I did was I wrote to about six to eight friends, and I said to them that as sunrise rises i'd like them to meet me in the park but they were all to come through different gates Hmm. so we worked out north south east and west so they were all to come in from a different gate and come in from the four directions and they were all invited to bring something that would honor the letting go and the saying goodbye Hmm. and they all wore white wow And I'll never forget standing under that tree and watching them all appear from the four different directions in their white silently when nobody else was in the Mm. park. It was about 5.30 in the morning. It was just amazing. And we all gathered under the tree. We laughed, we hugged, we cried. Then people started telling their stories. At one o'clock, we were still under the tree. <laughs> we were, the park had filled up by then. People would stop and look and think, they're having a good time. <laughs> and then someone said, hey, tell me think we better go and get something to eat. And it just, and we spent the day together mm. hanging out and it was just wonderful. And it really helped. It was almost like, um, I felt like I was being held through the love and connection of others Mm. rather than trying to journey through Mm. this what felt like a dark time on my own Mm. because you we we know that wherever there's dark there's light we know that but the human mind can sometimes forget that do you mean so sometimes we need reminders of that so it's the transitions that i feel society is hungry for yes do you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like, um, I, 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 again, you know, this is like now, many years later, a, a long-term relationship breaks down. And it's like, I notice that some people expect you to bounce back after about six months. Mm. So I um, had an, uh, a podcast interview with a coach. It was fine. Until they started coaching me live on the podcast to get another partner but I was like I'm in grief Mm. do you know what I mean like grief like we 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 need spaces Mm. where people can honor their feelings and their emotions Mm. and it's not enough to 
try and patch yourself up in order to move through that part of the change cycle and I think rituals and ceremonies are what the ancients understood when was not about fixing the person but about giving you medicine that will help you be with the journey be with the process yes do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. It's like, yes. you know, you don't just band-aid this and go smiling off. When it's right, that will happen. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And if it was meant to have happened, it would have happened. But I thought that was a little bit of a mis, a misunderstanding about where someone might be. And I think it's more of this care of the soul, yes. as Thomas More talks about, that I feel ministers are able to offer especially when someone feels like they're in a dark place and they're not talking about it Mm. do you know what I mean like they're not naming what it is they're experiencing and what they're feeling you know so I know that there have been times certainly in the last two years where it feels like what's what's the point of getting out of bed what's the point of continuing you know doing what I do had it not been for the practice that I have of journaling, which for me, it's like, you know, I tell people very openly, journaling saved my life. Mm. You know, if I have not had a practice of over 20 years or, or more of, you know, really using my journal as a space where I could process my emotions and my feelings and really stay connected to actually what is a rich inner life, you know, I'm not sure who I would be. Do you know what I mean? So like Mm. for me, the practice of journalism has been a way of um, enriching that inner life, really creating sacred space in in spaces where it feels like there is no sacredness. And coming back home Mm. to what truly matters. Um, I moved home um, almost two years ago. I think the, the journals took up more room in the removal van. <laughs> it was a little bit... Imp- <laughs> like, okay, you've got a lot of journals, Jackie. I sense a ritual burning coming I on. I know! <laughs> well, you see, the, the interesting thing about the ritual burning is, like, I'm in two camps, so I really get there is a, a, a really important release, but... And I also recognise that I go back to my journals for a lot of my articles. So I've still got to, there's a few that I still need to kind of sift through because I feel there are some important Mm. things as I'm writing a memoir at the moment. Mm. So it's like, there's still still a use for them. So for now, they're in the, you know, the sacred crucible of some storage (laughs) boxes. But... um, Mm. Oh, I love, I love... I love that. Um, I, I want to circle back to what you were saying about ceremony and ritual being a medicine, and how its purpose is not to fix; mm. it's really just to witness and yeah. to reconnect. Yeah. And I feel like I, if I were to voice the hesitations that I had in me when I had first heard about interfaith or this training there were questions in me as sort of being like, well, what's the point? Like, does it really work? And mm-hmm. and honouring that there is an element of faith involved in when stepping into this this sort of work or this space or, or a ceremony. But I love the way that you've you've worded it and it's it reflects kind of a, a truth that I keep deepening into around, you know, what what's the alternative? The alternative is that we stay in our life very closed, very quiet, very small and very safe. And we don't allow ourselves to open up to the mystery of what could be. And the most powerful ceremonies and rituals that I've experienced, they don't in any way, shape or form try to fix or change what is. Mm -hmm they're really a space for people to step into and to be held Mm -hmm. and to be seen Mm -hmm. and to be loved. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you were were saying about that sense of 
it allows a medicine to step in which inevitably sort of creates change. The, the image that sort of came to me, it's like if you have a big cruise liner ship on the ocean and you mm. change it just the tiniest degree in that moment, mm -hmm. it means when it sails on, it ends up way over there instead of way over there if mm -hmm. it was going straight ahead. And I feel like these little moments of ritual and ceremony, as grand or as small as they, they are, whether it's attending a big circular space of ceremony or whether it is simply sitting quietly and lighting a candle, like mm -hmm. you mentioned. There's small moments of within of like a realignment and a reconnecting, mm -hmm. of really asking those questions. Mm -hmm. Who do I want to be in the world? How do I want to live in the world? And for me, a ceremony and a ritual is always a returning to love, a returning to that connection, to that divine mystery, and to that presence of love that we all have within us, mm. in my view. <laughs> I don't think I could have put it any better. I think you, what you said there is uh, very beautiful. And for me, I really resonate with how you've described what ritual and ceremony is. And if you were to play back your words, when I hear you say things like witnessing and being seen, and being loved, you can see how the work of ministers sits alongside psychotherapy. Yes. Which is why an element of our training is about training as spiritual counsellors. Mm. Because I feel like more than ever, that's also needed in society. You know, you know, where do people go? I, I think, yes, many people do go into the space of psychotherapy. And the space of psychotherapy is, is more formal. Yes. Do you know, you yes. like you, it's a formal agreement. It has a different um, energy, I guess. Mm. And there's something for me about how as ministers we can offer a third space in a way. You know, I was, I was very touched by, you know, just the, the reminder that, you know, if, even for me, it doesn't feel comfortable anymore saying to people that I'm a coach and I'm a facilitator. And it's like, it's all these titles, but actually it's about who I am being in all of those. Yes. So when you say that, Interfaith has the bus driver, mm. has the cleaner. Mm. To me, that's a huge sign, huge sign that we're making progress. Mm. Because we need interfaith ministers to be the person serving the food in the inner city school who can look into the eye of a child who's come to them and is waiting for their dinner and see that there is a need mm. there. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And be able to meet something very, very immediate in the here and now. Mm. I'm thinking back to this, this sense of the journey and that we're all born ministers and people may traverse their life in experiencing different beliefs or religions or spiritual practices. People who are drawn to our interfaith ministry training, they arrive with us in that seminary for two years and mm -hmm. it is that sense of sort of meeting your tribe or, mm -hmm. but we're not learning anything in that space that we don't already mm -hmm. have. It's mm -hmm. almost like a, it's a, it's a polishing of the diamond. Mm -hmm. It's not a mm -hmm. diamond creation. No. <laughs> and so then we, we exit the two year training perhaps with a sharpened awareness of our gifts that we've been graced mm. and how we then bring them to the world, mm. having kind of spent that time of the training and community, mm -hmm. um, using the collective wisdom of the group to expand our edges mm -hmm. and to try and expand our capacity to be with conflict and mm -hmm. difference and wholeness mm -hmm. and oneness and... It feels important to try and articulate that sense of we're not making ministers, we're, we're revealing ministers yeah. in a way. Yeah. And what people then go on to do 
is really just a, a, I don't know if it's deeper or higher or wider, it's a perhaps a more expansive offering of what is at their, at their truest essence. Yeah. Which brings me to my, my next question around the gorgeous and rich diversity of your ministry, Jackie. And particularly, I want to hone in on journaling, knowing that it's such a profound part of your own spiritual path mm -hmm. and practice, but also of your ministry, mm -hmm. of what you bring to the world, what you offer, this remarkable tool that is available to everybody. Mm. What is it about the practice of journaling that connects you to the sacred? a lovely question well I have um, I certainly have a very strong memory of the first time I remember writing a poem which was for a competition for the brand new library that had opened just down the road from where we lived our class was invited to write a poem and the best poems would be chosen and displayed in the library foyer and there would definitely have been a moment when writing the poem I became the poem mm. do you know because I can remember the first time my teacher Mrs Hines at primary school read a poem to the class it was Wordsworth I wandered lonely like a cloud and I had like this whole mm. moment of complete bliss. I was six. Do you know what I mean? So I knew that there was something about words that just caught that child self. Mm. And I grabbed it. And I grabbed it with such vigor because on maybe on some level, my soul knew that I needed it. Mm. So I wrote this poem and it ended up winning the consolation prize and it was put up in the foyer of this beautiful library, this 70s iconic library. And I remember my uncle, my mum was too busy, so my uncle took me to the library and I saw my words staring back at me. And in the staring back of me, back at me, I saw myself mm. in the words. Mm. So there was something transpersonal about the writing process for that six-year-old that somehow I decided that one of the ways that I feel I could express myself was through words. So many, many, many years later, um, I think it was at my 50th, my best friend at school jokingly said to me oh don't you remember when you used to write those poems at school and they were so good and miss used to read them out in the classroom I was like what poems are you talking about she goes you used to write really good poems and miss mrs Hines would always say this is a really good poem and that was um that was a pivotal moment because what I realized was that I was um I had experienced a trauma early childhood trauma and the writing must have been the way that I expressed myself. Mm. I must have, it's like a, a part of how I could preserve the part of me that was still alive. Because mm. a, a big part of me was actually dying inside. Mm. And somehow the writing has been a lifeline that has kind of been that thread mm. that has kept me plugged in to life so I um I just loved writing mm. I loved writing I loved reading anytime you could get a book a brand new book I would be writing away and that went through childhood it stopped for three years when I went to university it was too left brain for me and I kind of lost my way a bit mm. but as soon as I came back out of university I was back on the page again and I didn't necessarily know why I was writing, what I was writing for. I just knew that it was just something that I found very cathartic. Um, and I just kept doing it. By the time I was pregnant with my daughter, when I was 26, I definitely felt like the writing was helping me order my thoughts. Mm. 
Do you know what I mean? So it, it was beginning to make a bit more sense. So I could write about, I found myself very much writing about difficult things, struggles I was having, challenges, but also dreams and aspirations. Mm. So I noticed that they began to inhabit the page together. Then as I um, moved into my 30s and 40s, I could really see how writing was also a reflective practice. It was a way that you could really make sense of your life, what you wanted, what you were doing. And I also began to see a reoccurring pattern that I was writing about the same things year after year mm. after year. Mm. I was writing about the same difficulties year after year after year. So there was clearly something that I wasn't doing. Mm. I could see that there was something that that neural pathway was deeply embedded because actually, even though I knew that the reflective part of it was good, I wasn't actually going back to those journals and really sitting with, okay, Jackie, you talked about not loving yourself five years ago mm. do you know what I mean why is it still happening five years on from when you last wrote about it so what is it you're not doing mm. I wasn't really engaging with what was some very valuable information on the pages of my journal so that was a that was a, a light bulb moment so what I realized was that I then began to devour books on journal writing <laughs> so the therapeutic elements of journal writing I wanted to understand better I wanted to get a better sense of why this as a practice would be a practice that could grow me I also realized that um, meditation is something that I have an on-off relationship with. So sometimes I can be good at doing my meditation and then life will just come and knock me mm. for six. And it, it's very easy for my meditation practice to to kind of um, dwindle away. Whereas the writing, I don't mm. know what it is about. I just always have a pen and a, a book with me wherever I'm going or an index card so I could keep that as a practice going mm. and what I think is good about meditation practice is really it shows you how to have a practice mm. so there are many things that we can do so alongside the writing the practice that also grew up alongside it was walking first of all it was running then it was walking so that's another practice that I do regularly and is one that I can maintain so um, I dived into learning more about the therapeutic benefits of journal writing and it's just fantastic. Mm. So we have the work of Dr. James Pennybaker um, and um, he's um, been researching for over 20 years around um, the therapeutic benefits of writing about difficult traumas, experiences that you've had. He had this, um, he did his research with students, with leaders in organisations. Um, it was a practice of writing for four or five consecutive days for 20 minutes or more about a traumatic incident and how the page, it's almost like the page could soak up the emotions and the feelings. We know that we need to express mm. the emotions. And often in the expressing of the emotions, you get back in contact with your true nature. So when you suppress the emotions, it's almost as if you suppress your true nature. So for me, what I found with journaling is, journaling is that it helps me shape my mm. true nature. It helps me get back in touch with that true nature. So James Pennybaker's research has been going on for over 20 years and loads of other people have added to that. They found that it had physical um, benefits, people felt less stress, their immune system improved. They actually visited the doctors less when they wrote around that, that traumatic experience using that 20 minute frame for three to five days. Um, they felt emotionally better. They eventually, they didn't feel it immediately, but month, six weeks, three months later, they felt better about themselves. They felt happier. Mm. They felt more satisfied. They felt more confident. They also found that um, journaling about good stuff also has therapeutic mm. benefits. So now you're realizing that, hold on a minute, when you journal, you can bring all elements and aspects of yourself to the page mm. and in a way when we do a ritual or a ceremony you're bringing yourself 
you're bringing yourself to you know just like we're talking about bringing yourself to the altar mm. you there's a, there's a reverence in there and i would often notice that by writing my journal i could move myself from one state to another so i could be feeling depressed i could be feeling down i could write about all the things i was feeling not stay in the victim consciousness let's just say for example mm. and actually move myself into a more enlarged empowered energized mm. state i could actually close my journal and breathe and think oh actually i'm okay mm. Mm. now being able to do that with something that doesn't really cost a lot is inexpensive your journal's open 24 hours a day <laughs> do you know what I mean it doesn't close it actually bears witness mm. it often puts you in touch with your inner wisdom mm. do you know what I mean it's like how many times have I written in my journal like I was on the train going somewhere and it's like after writing my journal all these ideas poured out mm. for this problem that I was having that I've been sitting with for weeks but the moment I sit down and sink into my journal writing this is not what I'm focusing on but yet through the process of the writing I get to all these other gems that percolate up under the subconscious and come out into the conscious mind mm. Mm. that's the work of spirit mm. do you know what I mean you can't do you know what I mean inside of you once you so in a way when we journal it's like the beginning of going into meditation because mm. you're sitting still mm. you're allowing yourself to sink into yourself I love this quote by um, um, it's from a book called The Pen and the Bell and it's it's something like when you play a violin regularly, the music stays in the violin. Mm. When you don't play the violin regularly, the music dims. Mm. It's like, you know, that hum in the violin. Mm. And it related that to journal writing. So no matter what I'm going through, if I can keep that practice, mm which I often do most of the time, I can ride the waves of life. I can get through that difficult meeting. I can get through and navigate a way through a very painful and difficult breakup. I can get through those challenging times of my work. Do you know, it's like, I feel like it's like a compass. Mm. It helps me with all the different directions of my life. And often I am amazed at what comes through it. Mm. Mm. I feel so blessed by this conversation and I feel like you've brought so much richness and truth and there's such a vibrancy to you and your work and your way with words. And mm. yeah, I feel, I feel very connected and I feel very inspired mm. and I feel so grateful. So do I. Mm. I feel like um, just to be in this space and in conversation for me feels like medicine for the soul that it's just a joy to be part of. Mm. And um, in every conversation, everyone is receiving mm. we are both givers and receivers yes so i have received as much as i have given mm. and you know i was just as a, as a last note i was just thinking one of the things that i really made peace with is that if i never achieve another thing or you know write another book or just do anything my journals are testimony mm. to a rich life mm. do you know and that is so soul satisfying like when the light goes out i know that i lived yeah and that i honored as much of the journey as i could 
in a way that just captures, you know, a snapshot mm. of who I have been in the life that I, I have lived. Mm. I feel so moved by that. I think it's how we all want to go out with a sense of, I was here. Yeah. And I think the journaling just reminds us that we are here. I am here. And of course, that is one of the greatest prayers I am. Yeah. Indeed you are, Jackie Holder. <laughs> mm. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Bring It to the Altar. Stay tuned for episode four, where you'll meet Pippa Jones, a graduate of the One Spirit Learning Alliance in New York. Pippa was ordained in 2012 and is currently based in Sydney, Australia. This episode begins with Pippa recounting her experience of being in Manhattan that fateful morning of September the 11th, 2001. It changed her in ways that can never be unchanged. It's a powerful and beautiful episode exploring interfaith ministry, sacred activism, and how this one spirit training changes us from the inside, if we let it. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram at Bring It to the Altar. And for more information, visit interfaithfoundation.org. <laughs>